0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. The Lord be with you. You may have seen it before on a laminated card in a Christian bookstore or perhaps in the back page of a Bible one of those that you see from the Gideons in a hotel room. It's a listing of passages to look up in the Bible when you need to hear a word from God. Usually on the left-hand side of the card are different life situations, like when you worry, when you feel alone, you feel anxious, when you're struggling with temptation or struggling with your faith. On the right-hand side of that card are passages that you should look up for just those situations. For instance, when you're worried, you look up 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. It's a pretty easy way to find a passage that speaks to you and speaks, allows God to come to you when you need him. But you don't really want to, and we think about it, it's kind of nice and easy way to do it. I mean, you really wouldn't want someone who's worried to open up the book of the Bible just to anywhere and all of a sudden be reading that God struck Ananias and Sapphira down dead in their tracks. Or somebody else picks up because they, they're, they're tempted by something, they open it up and they read that, oh my gosh, God sent, God sent bears to kill 42 children who were mocking Elisha. Now, I don't know that that's a great way to start a relationship with God in the Bible. But it does help. I mean, it's easier just to pick a preselected verse and then begin reading that verse. I mean, a list of passages can be comforting. It really can, because it it does bring people who otherwise might not know God or know how to even look for anywhere in the Bible to come to the Bible, to open the Bible, and to read it. But there is an inherent difficulty here, if you haven't figured that out yet. Some people never get beyond this kind of reading the Bible. They open the pages, they find a comforting word, they set the Bible down, back on the table. That's it. They never find themselves entering through the door. Think of the Bible as this big giant building with 66 doors. You can go in any door, but they don't. When you go in through those doors... If they would, they would find a very deep and richer story of Scripture than just one perfect passage. Or kind of like our pericopes for today. You get a snippet of the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament, of Paul's letters today, and the Gospel, but that's all you get. It doesn't cover the source. doesn't cover the greater story. When this happens, when people allow this to happen, Christianity becomes something that was never intended to be. It becomes a personal, private religion. Something you turn not to when you enter into the world, but you turn to when you want to retreat from the world. Something you read in a very private devotional time so that you might look forward to that time when it's just me and Jesus all alone. I don't have anything else to worry about. He's my BFF. He's my best forever friend because he supports me in tough times. He helps me accomplish my goals. He helps me fulfill my dreams. Is there a problem with that? Do you have a problem with that? I do. You see, the roles are reversed here, right? Rather than you being a servant in God's kingdom, of God's kingdom, God is becoming a servant in your kingdom. Rather than being brought into God's greater story, you bring God down into your story where you're the centerpiece, not God. Our attention these last few weeks on our Roman series, God's greater story, has been focused on the main character in the story, the main actor, and it's not you. It's God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's God bringing the creating the world and all the cosmos around it. It's God who was there at the beginning. God who will be there at the end, recreating a glorious new recreation. But we live between we live between the beginning and the end. God is still here, though, as we have found out. God is here Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in love, and as we found out last week, ruling over the ruins of a broken and fallen world. Today, I want to look at how God's greater story involves God's greater people. I mean, God is present for every individual person. He's even found in a very small Bible passage in a Gideon Bible in some lonely heart in a hotel room. But God's vision is much greater than that little passage found in a Gideon Bible in a hotel room. God has come in Christ Jesus not only to save each person in his creation, but to join you to a people who live by God's promise and for his purpose and in his love and his kingdom. This is what Paul reveals in our text for today. This is what God wants you to rejoice in today. And yet we start our topic at Romans 9, verse 1, with Paul knee-deep in a very personal, private, private, painful prayer a very private moment that paul lets us in on have you ever come before god with a prayer like that have you ever come before god with someone you love someone you care about deeply to pray for and you know that that person doesn't give any notion whatsoever about faith do you stop loving that person you still love that person You still care for that person. You know God still desires that that person be saved. And yet you stand there alone. Not because you do not believe, but because that person, your mother, your son, your daughter, your granddaughter, your grandson, your husband, your wife, does not believe in God. God. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you have a, a tiny bit of understanding to what Paul is going through in this very private, painful, personal moment of prayer. So let's hear how Paul says it again, like I think he would be saying it, because I can't repeat it in then matter, but let me try. I'm crying out. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. That's his prayer. His heart aches. Why? Because five years earlier, the Jewish people were expelled from Rome. Emperor Claudius was trying to maintain law and order after a lot of civil unrest. I could name a few cities in here where there's a lot of civil unrest that need some law and order. Claudius did what every previous emperor or governor or mayor in our cities had done before. Tiberius in 19 AD comes to mind. He expels all the Jews from Rome. All of them. Only the Jews and only from Rome. Five years before. When Claudius died, the expulsion died with him. And now these Jewish people were beginning to return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The problem and the potential problem, the question was, how would the church now receive them? What had begun as a movement of faith among the Jews was now predominantly Gentile. The Jews had left, but the church remained and had grown with Gentile believers. Paul is worried not only for the Jews who don't believe, but also for the Gentiles who may not see any reason to care about the Jewish people. After all, they've been gone five years. Earlier in his letter, Paul reveals all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul asks, then what advantage has the Jew? We would all agree with Paul if he said none, right? All are sinful, all are justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's no advantage to being a Jew, is there? But Paul doesn't say there's no advantage. Listen to what he says again. What advantage has the Jew? Much. Much advantage in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then Paul begins listening in Romans 3 and runs all the way through Romans 9, telling you, revealing the blessings of God upon his people Israel. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, The giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed be forever. Amen. That's how he ends his prayer. They do have an advantage. They did have an advantage. Paul is engaged in this moment of prayer. It's personal and it's private, but have you noticed what this prayer is about? It's wrapped in the larger work of God. It's not just about Paul. Paul's not praying for himself here. He's praying for God's people, all people. He's not setting before God his own day or his own plan. He's not asking for God's blessing. He's finding that God's story set before him And he's praying for the fulfillment of God's plan, not our plan. Not the Jew plan, not the Gentile plan. And then he goes on to say how God chose Abraham to be the father of his people. God chose to bless not only them, but all the nations on earth. From Abraham and his descendants, according to the flesh, comes Christ, the one in whom Israel and all nations are blessed. You see, Paul knows this greater story of God, and, and it is shaping Paul's life. It's shaping his prayer. What's amazing is that this Paul in prayer is caught up in the heart of the story, because Paul is willing to die. He's willing to die for the sake of the Jews. That's how caught up he is in it. He knows even that not all of his Jewish brothers and sisters believe in Jesus. And because of that expulsion of the Jews from Rome, it would be very easy for the Christian church to become a Gentile church that finds no value, no care about those folks from Israel. This overwhelms Paul, not only with pain, but with personal love, wishing that he could be cut off from Christ, if that means he could save the Jewish people. It's amazing how Paul's heart is filled in this moment of personal pain with love. The love of Jesus is so overwhelming in Paul. Because it's Jesus who is the very one who was willing to be cut off from his own father. It is Jesus who is the only one who was willing to drink the cup of his father's wrath. Jesus is the only one who is willing to be forsaken by God. Jesus is the only one willing to be condemned to hell so that all people might find the kingdom open to them if they trust in him. For in him is forgiveness, life, and everlasting salvation. In him is the promise that your sins are forgiven, that you are are now a part of the people of God who live by the promise as part of God's greater story. That's what Paul is doing in this prayer. He's living by that promise. He's letting God's greater story, God's greater vision shape his prayer and his life in self-sacrificial love a good lesson for all of us how does that relate to you today or to me well paul reminds us we're part of that greater people brought into god's story sometimes we tend to lose sight of the big picture don't we and especially if our little body right here is not the center of that big picture We tend to lose sight of everything else. That's really important. Faith even becomes a very personal, devotional, private experience that helps us get through the week. We don't think beyond that a lot of times. Paul's here to awaken us to the fact that we are part of a people, much greater people, much greater people. Not just us, not just me and my own little kingdom who live by the promises of God. I want you to think about that for a minute as I tell you a story. Paul says we are part of a people, a much greater people, who live by the promise of God. There was a Lutheran pastor who went to Israel and had a very interesting evangelistic experience. He worked with a leader named Bodil, who was working in a center in Jerusalem that focused on supporting and small communities of faith among the Jewish people. The pastor went with Bodil as she talked with a Jewish woman who did not believe in Christ. This is how that conversation went. The woman asked Bodil why she was so concerned. After all, you have your Bible. You have your Jesus. I have my scriptures. And I have my God. Why do I need to believe in your Jesus? Why can't we both just believe in God? Bodil looked at the woman and said if my Jesus isn't your Messiah then I don't want him your scriptures are my scriptures your God is my God and if Jesus is not your Messiah then I don't want him and I'll wait for the one God has promised this shocked the pastor surprised him to no end Because for years, the pastor had looked at the Old Testament scriptures, as most of us do, even lay people, as being helpful to prove that Jesus was God. You could pick up or choose a passage among anywhere, really. To us, a child is born in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You could look around there and you could find them, And it would help people to understand how these passages talked about God. But it wasn't near as easy or, or, or as comfortable as going right straight to the New Testament where we can find Jesus everywhere and all kinds of passages about Jesus. Yes, the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, but it's better to focus on the Gospels. Better to focus on Paul's letters. You see, sermons rarely work when they're about the Old Testament. Think about Bible studies. When you have a Bible study and a pastor asks you where do you want to go, which one you want to study on? They don't ever go to the Old Testament, they always go to the New Testament. So much easier. It's the same. How strange it is then to hear Bodil's answer. Why is it strange? Because she started with the Old Testament. Why? She's Jewish. Those were her scriptures. Those were her words from God. When she wanted to hear a word from God, she went to those scriptures. And if Jesus didn't fulfill those scriptures, she would just hold on to the Old Testament and wait for the Messiah that God had promised. I should tell you the end of that story. As a footnote, the woman that Bodil talked to did not come to faith that day. But the pastor had a large lesson learned. He began to see deeper how God had brought him into a much larger story than just the New Testament. story of God's work through a people in the whole world. This God who created all things, brought forth a people, gave them promises, sent them prophets. And now this pastor in Christ is part of that. People in church, in Christ, and in the body of Christ. So now the prophets are not simply books he turned to to find a passage that he might relate to Jesus. No, he began to read them and see the larger vision, the glory of God pouring out of the Old Testament. Yes, that vision centered in Jesus, but it was much richer, much fuller than that pastor could ever have known if he had not been there that day to hear those words. Consider today's Old Testament reading. God calls his people to come and eat. This is part of God's eternal vision of a banquet for all people. God speaks of an everlasting covenant made with David. He's a witness and a leader and a commander of his peoples. And through him Israel will call nations they did not know and nations who did not know them will come to them. And suddenly we start to see this table grow and grow and grow a much larger table a greater feast for all people. We begin to overhear God's promises throughout the Old Testament to care, feed all God's people. From the manna that falls from heaven, to the rocks that flow with the waters in the wilderness, from the table that our Lord shepherd prepares, to the teaching that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord the table that wisdom set for her people this banquet lies behind the banquet parables of Jesus this eschatological feast is the kingdom of God lies ahead of us as part of God's people gathered from all nations who live by the promises of God so rather than just open a Bible and try to use God in your life for one moment or one specific time, you find that God opens the scriptures and brings you into his story. Every single breath you take. The story of his life, your life, and the life of all the people on this earth. <clears throat> there's a way, I guess, there's a little painting that we can do that captures that. You should have this in your bulletin. The painting that captures what that looks like God bringing us into his story his story not ours this used to be on an altar in Siena <clears throat> it was one of the five small paintings at the very bottom of the altarpiece. if you were a Lutheran you could never see it because no one ever sits up close in the Lutheran faith except my wife and she's meant to have to do that <clears throat> so I <laughs> Really, if you sat far back in the church, you wouldn't see it. But if you come up closer for communion, you would see it. You would see it right there. This is a small painting, but it shows us a moment of work in God's own mind about his world, not ours. About his kingdom and his work, not ours. That painting is of the Annunciation. The moment Mary received word from the angel Gabriel that she was chosen to bear the Savior. If you notice, Mary is seated alone in a room. There's not anything else or no one else around to distract her except that one person right there, the angel Gabriel. I mean, she might, she probably, if you look at her arms crossed, is probably in prayer, right? And then the angel Gabriel comes into the room, and she's—he <clears throat> bears a message from God. That looks, help, that looks normal enough, that's nice, comfortable. But there's something else amazing about this picture. When you look at this painting, the artist doesn't paint this in a realistic way. We would expect if we' were just doing the Annunciation, Mary might be in a really small hut, little house, at the edge of her small bed. Gabriel sits down next to her, one-on-one conversation. The artist paints that, no, no. The artist has placed this in a much larger story of God's work in the whole world. Look outside the house where Mary sits. You find a garden. But not just any garden. You find the Garden of Eden. The artist takes Mary in the house in which she prays and places it on the edge of the Garden of Eden. And outside her window are Adam and Eve when you look out that window it's a sad scene that you see you see God the father banishing Adam and Eve out of the garden don't you for they have sinned against God and brought his wrath upon all the creation and now they are subject to death and must live in a ruins in a fallen world as God the father extends his arms to banish them from the garden though something beautiful happens if you follow God's arm you will notice that God is pointing from the garden to the Virgin Mary sitting in her room. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he does so with a promise that there will come a day when the woman will have an offspring who will bruise the head of Satan and will rescue his people from their sin. Adam and Eve and all those people who lived after them Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Malachi. All these people were people of the promise. And now, here in this small room, in this private moment of prayer, God brings Mary into his story. And in her words of love, self-sacrificial love, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. God continues his greater story of bringing about salvation in this world. Mary in that moment of prayer just like Paul did not try to use God as a servant in her plan. She humbly offered herself as a servant of his in his plan. Her private prayer was a moment when God brought her into the story of his people. It was true for Mary. It was true for the Apostle Paul in Romans. And it is true for you today. As you come to this altar to receive a foretaste of God's eternal feast, I suggest you come rejoicing that God has chosen to bring you into his larger story, to be part of a people who live by his promise and with self-sacrificial love try to seek to serve him in the world. Amen.